All right, go ahead, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, if you got them, if you're on your uh, phone. That's uh, kind of in the middle of your New Testament, 1 Corinthians. We are in our very last sermon on this series. Now, I've said that already today, but we've gone verse by verse through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if, you, if you remember, this has been a highly practical book. One of the reasons I've really enjoyed this sermon series is we've gotten to touch on all these different parts of life that are just overwhelmingly practical. And today, as I, I wrap up, we're going to look at Paul's kind of concluding thoughts. There's a standard way in the first century that you started a letter. That was the introduction. And there's a standard way that you ended a letter. That's his ending today that we're going to be looking at today and, and kind of work through those last phrases. As I go through this, part of my goal today is to take us down a bit of memory lane. I want to look at some of the ground we've covered in 1 Corinthians in light of his ending and bring to light the things we studied so that hopefully we're a community that's truly changed by this sermon series. That we don't just kind of come and go too casually and not let this do its work in our heart so that we can move on from here actually having grown. We've been changed as a community because of this, and now we're moving on to how do we build on top of where we've already been. We don't want to go through all of life just constantly never, never building on the foundation that we already actually have, but we want to build deeper foundations and grow on top of that. So let me read to us this, these final words, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to be starting in verse 5, as we read 1 through 4 last week. So from verse 5 through the end, Paul says this, I will visit you, writing to the Corinthian church, after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you might help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. That he might return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for you, they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Two kind of sections to this sermon today. First, I want to look at the, the, the closing as a whole. And I want to draw out three themes for us. And then we're going to focus in on those five imperatives that we saw in verses 13 and 14. And we're going to finish our study of 1 Corinthians by looking at those five imperatives of verses 13 to 14. So the first kind of three overviews are three loves. I think Paul, as an apostle, as a follower of Jesus, there's three clear loves that you can draw out from the way he ends this. First of all, remember, 1 Corinthians was a letter, just like you might write a letter to somebody. 
You know, a letter to a group of friends or a letter to someone you love. Maybe you wrote love letters at some point. Maybe you're writing a love letter right now and you got it halfway done. You know what writing a letter is like. This was a letter to a group of people he loved dearly in Corinth. And now he's signing off. And you can see he's got these plans to visit them and you can hear the love coming through him. So I want to highlight three particular loves. Number one, Paul had a love of the Corinthian church. That's the collective group of Christians in Corinth that were coming together regularly to worship together. He loved them. Look at verse seven. He says, I do not want you, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But then but he says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Paul, Paul's saying here, look, I want to come visit you, but I don't just want to do it quickly. I want to linger with you. I want to do life with you. I, I, I want to I get into your homes and eat a meal with you. I, I want to I hear all of what God's doing in your life and hear the hardships you're going through, and I want to minister to you. I want to linger long enough to know, to know everything about you so that I'm not just a, a friend from a distance, but, but I'm actually in your life, and, and you're in my life, and we can mutually serve and care for one another. Paul doesn't just want to be a pastor from a distance teaching doctrine. Right? I think with a book like 1 Corinthians, it has so much doctrine and so much practical life. It can, it can be easy to think of Paul as this, here's your lessons for how you live right. And that is to miss the entire heart of this book. Paul was a man who deeply loved this Corinthian church. And I think perhaps the first scan of our own heart is do we have a deep love for the church that we're a part of? I mean, I mean do, we, do we love this community the way that Paul loved the Corinthian community? The heart of a Christian should be like the heart of Paul. This is not because he was an apostle. It's because he was a Christian. He loved his church community. He was in their life. He was in their homes. He, he knew their kids' names. He, he, he wanted to see them further. And, and, and the question is, do we have that love for one another? As we've studied 1 Corinthians, th- think of the, the language that we've come across that has, that has built towards this. The differences among the body, but the unity of the body. There's different giftings, but one spirit, and we're all tied together. We had many sermons on that theme. Paul had this deep love of the church that he wanted to sink into the people of God. Number two, he had a love of God's kingdom. I love that. Paul, Paul he had these different loves that were, it wasn't like one trumped the other, but he was driven, and one of those key loves of him, like the pedal that he just kept down, was this love of what God was doing. Look at verse eight to nine. He says, I wanna come linger with you, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. That's interesting language, isn't it? Now, we don't know exactly what that door looked like, but we know this, that that Paul was in Ephesus. He's laboring among these people. A, a city like Ephesus in the first century, there's an entire book called Ephesians in the Bible, which is about that letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. They had all kinds of difficulties. There was persecution in the church. There was rampant idolatry. And here's Paul saying, you know, I just want to come visit you people in Corinth. I want to come love on you, but here's what I know. Right now, God, I, I'm laboring among this group in Ephesus, and I can't get up and go right now. I mean, the way the spirit of God is moving and the people that are coming to faith in Jesus and the love that's going out into the community and and all the transformation I see happening, as much as I want to come over there right now, I see what God's doing and I need to stay here right now. And look at that. He says, and there are many adversaries. This is important. Wherever you see a mighty work of God happening, there will be adversaries that rise up. And, and, And Christian, you should not be surprised by that. 
wherever we see in our own lives that God opens up a door for us to have effective ministry, opens up a door for us to be faithful servants and Christians and witnesses to Christ, you should expect that Satan is gonna throw everything he possibly can at you to hinder that work in your life. There are many adversaries. So I ask you again, I wanna scan our own heart. Do we have a love of the work that God's doing through us in the kingdom of God? Is it the type of love that we can define it, right? As Christians, I think it's easy to kind of go through life and, and we just get busy, right? We get busy with the things we do in life. We have jobs, we raise families, we have lives in the communities we're a part of. But do we ever take inventory and say, wait, pause, push pause, family, family meeting. What is Jesus doing right now in this family? Let's label it. Let's, let's, let's put descriptions on it so we don't miss it. Because if you're a faithful follower of Jesus, the Lord is doing something in you and through you right now. He is opening doors for you all around your life. Relationships, relationships. He's opening up opportunities to minister to others. And if you, if you just go through all of life just blindly, just, you just keep going, just don't, never stop, you miss them all. And so like Paul, we gotta say, wait a second, okay, family, family meeting, what, what's God doing right now? Do we know it? And then are we re, reprioritizing our time and our energy into what God is up to? The order, here's the Christian life. The Christian life is this. Jesus, you're my king. I follow you. Now, I may have had a number of other agendas and priority items, the things I wanted to see in my life. All of that, it's not necessarily wrong, unless it was sinful, not necessarily wrong at all. But now that I'm a Christian, my first question is this, what are you doing? What are you calling me to? And now I wanna, I wanna take all of this and reorient it towards that. Are we able to do that? That's some of the hardest work you'll do as a Christian. It's some of the hardest work you'll do because when the, things, when the agendas and priorities in your life are not necessarily sinful, it's very easy to justify all of them. It's very easy to justify it all because it's not necessarily wrong. You can validate it by, by cherry picking the Bible. The question is not, is it permissible? The question is, is it what Jesus has called you to? Because if Jesus is your king, and if you have a union with Christ through the Holy Spirit that's been put in your heart when, when you accepted Jesus, now you're in relationship with him. And he has promised he will lead you and he will open up doors for effective ministry. Do you know what those are? Are you laboring? Are you reorganizing your life towards them? Number three, so the first two, he had a love of the Corinthian church. He had a love of God's kingdom. Number three, I love this. Paul had a love of his friends. Isn't this so human? He had a love of his friends. Did you see the names he listed off in this closing? There were a number of names. Think of this. He mentioned Timothy. Now, we know Timothy. First and second Timothy are two books in the Bible. In those books, he says, I've, be I've become like a spiritual father to Timothy. Timothy was a, was a young man who he just loved on this guy. He brought Timothy with him on missions and on ministry, and Timothy became a co-worker with him. He mentions Apollos by name. And then, by the way, when he mentions them, he says, make sure you take care of these men when they come among you. Just, just be tender with them. Listen to them. Care for them. They're, they're friends of mine. He mentions Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Aquila, and Prisca. This is interesting. Paul had a handful of folk. Now, he loved the church. Think of Paul. He, he was ministering in Ephesus, in Galatia, in Jerusalem. He was ministering in Corinth, in Thessalonica. He was all over the Mediterranean. He had acquaintances and churches that he was caring for all over the known world at the time. But he, when he finished letters, he called out a handful of names of people that were dearly beloved to him. People that he had particularly 
had his life wrapped up in theirs and their life wrapped up in his. And he, and he said, care for them. They're spread out. I, they're in danger. Some of them in other places, they're suffering and they're sick. And he says, would you just minister to them when they come to you? Because he was near unto death, but the Lord saved his life. He says, care for them. Every Christian needs some really faithful, close friends in their life who are also Christians. And the reason for that is because as a follower of Jesus, you've got the train of your life going in a particular direction. It's, it's to follow Jesus. This is, this is where you're going. But, but then our flesh works against this, this agenda. The agenda is here's God. He's, saved every, he's changed everything about me, and I'm going this way. But, but the flesh inside of me is, is motivated by all different kinds of things. I got pride in here. I, I, got, I got wrong motives in here. I got wrong ambitions in here. I got all types of wrong things that slowly, when left unchecked, the train just does this a little bit. It, it veers off track. And this is where you need a faithful follower of Christ who's a good friend. The kind of friend that, you know, it's, it's the person you want to call and just spend time with. And, and the kind of Christian friend that you can labor in prayer together with. Just fervently that you can pour out, pour out your heart to. Because what's gonna happen is when you get in that intimate place with each other, now when, when there starts to be a veering, the friend says, let me pray for you. Let's get you back where you were, where you were headed before. I, I, I've walked with so many folks who don't have that. And that's one of the reasons, you know, during the meet and greet at church, uh, every, every week I say, we're a family. We gotta get to know each other. We gotta know each other's names. And one of the reasons I try to build that into us is because I have walked with too many people over the years who that train has started to veer and we're trying to do everything we can to just prop it back, but what they need is a friend. They need a life friend to just pray with them and someone they just want to hang out with and go to the Sox game, but then afterwards pray with each other in the car and labor over what's happening in their life. Let me just say, if you don't have that yet, I've had seasons in my life where I didn't have that. If you don't have that, you are in the place right now where that can get formed. Don't, don't think this is something different than that. You, you need the church community. And to be honest with you, probably, if, if I could suggest one thing, it's the men's and women's ministry this summer. I, I don't mean to like plug an event, but that literally is what this is designed for, to help you actually meet the others here that maybe God's orchestrating your life to be that in each other's life. Paul had, what do you have? A love for the Corinthian church a love for God's kingdom, and a love for his friends. And Christian, those need to be true of us as well. We need to scan our heart. If any of those are not genuinely here, if there's not a concern for any of those three different loves, there's something seriously wrong with our walk with Jesus. Because the instructions we find all through scripture are that those are just, that's, that's like ground zero for the follower of Christ is those three things. That's not radical apostolic Christianity. It's just this is being a follower of Jesus. Now, Let's dig into verses 13 to 14. Let me read them to you again. Five imperatives. And I think these five imperatives function as a little bit of a, uh, his closing charge. Think of William Wallace storming across his army before he goes into battle, yelling his, remember this, remember who we are. This is a little bit of his apostolic charge to his people. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Five imperatives, let's go through each of them. Number one, be watchful. This phrase can mean one of two things, and I think it highlights a number of things from the book of 1 Corinthians. Number one, it can mean be watchful for the return of Jesus. What did we just sing about a minute ago? When you return, when you call me home, right? It means have a sense about you that Christ is returning, 
And we're organizing our life towards that moment when he comes back and ushers in the final heaven. It can also mean, more generally, be watchful over your life. Take care about the way you live your life and the, and the things that are happening around you. Be watchful about what's taking place. Let's start with the first one. Be watchful for the return of Christ. We had a whole two sermons in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Review. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15? That's that beautiful, remarkable chapter in the Bible that, we, that describes what heaven is going to be like. We had a whole sermon titled, What Will Heaven Be Like? In which we looked at the details of what our body will be like in heaven and how the glory of our heavenly body is not even worth comparing with the glory of our earthly body. It'll be totally different. It'll be made for heaven. And heaven is not somewhere out in the, 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 the universe out there somewhere. But when Jesus returns, he brings heaven to this earth. And it's a physical body in all, in all the way we were meant to live. Remember 1 Corinthians 15? Behold, I tell you a mystery, verses 51 and 52. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When Paul says be watchful, one of the things he's saying is, don't let the fact that some time has passed before that's been fulfilled get your eyes off the reality that it's coming. If that is true, Christian, then build your life around it. How many parables did Jesus tell about being watchful, waiting faithfully? Don't let your lamp, don't, don't let the oil in your lamp dry out before the, the master returns because then you'll have no lamp to find your way to him. But keep your lamp lit, says Jesus. Be watchful. And then it also has this sense of being watchful in a general sense. This has the connotation of, think of in the military, you know, if two guys are out in the, in the jungle together and they're tired, one of them stays awake while the other gets some sleep. Why? He's on guard. He's, he's looking around. He's making, because you need sleep, you got to take turns sleeping, but if you both fall asleep, well, you could get ambushed by people that, that, are, that, mean, you, that mean you harm. And so be watchful has this militaristic imagery to it, which says, keep an eye out, because it is so easy to get off track from what you've been called to as a follower of Jesus. It's easy to lose your priority. We see the same word used a handful of times in scripture. First Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not sleep as others do. Here it is, but let us keep awake. Same word. And be sober. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Same word right there. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I wonder what instructions Paul particularly had in mind. Maybe, maybe it was be watchful about that division we talked about in, in chapters one through three. Remember chapters one through three? And the conversation was, there's division that's growing up. Some people said, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow this guy over here. And then there were like little sections within the, within the church community and they were becoming divided and this group wasn't talking to this group. And we talked about how easy that is to happen in a church. We actually experienced that over, over the, the COVID years and the COVID time. I had a number of sermons during that where I was looking at our church community saying, you guys, like how did we get so polarized from each other? We gotta get back in each other's homes. We gotta do some life together again. And, and so maybe when he says be watchful, he's going back to that division in chapters one through three and saying be watchful for it. You start to see division, you get rid of that right away. Stand on guard, be vigilant. This is, this is the bride of Christ, it's the church. We can't let that divide, divide the church. Or maybe he was talking about, maybe he has in mind the promiscuity that, that had come in chapters five through seven that was sinking into the church. And he's saying, hey, remember, remember the instructions in those chapters? 
Don't, don't let that kind of sin slip into the church. This is God's bride. And we need to be really serious about guarding it from letting sin be celebrated among us. And so Paul's saying, be watchful. Back in the Old Testament, there's a, a wonderful story I always think of, the, the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the story. The people of God in the Old Testament were, had been taken out of Israel, and they essentially had been ex- exiled into Babylon. But over, after a number of years, the, a new king gets risen up in Babylon, and, and the, a number of the people from, uh, who were Israelites get to go back to the land of Israel. And now it's been a number of years. It's been generations since they've been back in their own land. But Nehemiah is one of those men. And Nehemiah goes back, and when he gets back to Israel, he, he gets to Jerusalem, and he looks over the land that he hasn't been in for generations. Maybe his, I don't know how old he was, but his parents perhaps had been there and told him stories about what it was like. And he gets there, and the land is in ruins. The temple is just falling apart. The wall has been totally destroyed. And so Nehemiah gets to work with a handful of folks. He says, let's rebuild the wall. That's what the book of Nehemiah is about in the Old Testament. Let's rebuild this wall. This is God's temple. Let's build this. But as soon as they start building it, there's... There's persecution from all around. Nobody wants them to rebuild the wall. Every nation around them, they got threats coming their way. People are trying to kill Nehemiah when he's not looking. The, the, the enemies of Israel are writing letters back to the king of Assyria, who's the head honcho at this point, saying, you better be careful of them. You better not let them build this wall. So what does Nehemiah do? Listen to verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18. As the builders are building the wall, because of all these threats, Each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. (laughs) This is how Nehemiah got the wall built. Every single one of the builders also had his sword on his side because at any moment they could be attacked by those who wanted the work to be stopped. But they couldn't stop building the wall. And so they worked with their sword on their side and they waited for a trumpet. And if at any moment the trumpet got sounded, they stopped building and they pulled out their sword and they went to battle. Christian, that's a little image for you of the Christian life. We build the wall with our sword on, on our side. And what that means is that we are constantly scouring our own life, our family's life, the life of our community, like, like those who have a sword on our side. And we're saying, where, where are we being tempted as a family to, to get off track from what God's called us to? Where is this church family being tempted to you know, blend in with society around us rather than being that shining city on a hill that the church is supposed to be, rather than being the pure bride of Christ. And then we, we have our sword ready and we're, we're scanning our life, we're scanning our own heart. And at any point we see any impurity in us, we constantly go right back to God. We say, God, God, do work right now in us. We don't want to get off track here. You're our king. This means being, being vigilant about the media we consume. We've studied this as a church. Being, being vigilant about it because the, the images and the, the words and the thoughts that we bring into our own heart, th- this can slowly corrupt us, can't it? It means especially being vigilant over the media our children consume. How many times have we talked about this? Just being on guard, knowing what's coming into our homes. Building with one hand on your sword, being ready. When you see the wrong thing outside of the standard of God, we have our sword ready to go. We must be watchful. Gotta be watchful. Second imperative, stand firm in the faith. Oh, I love this language. Stand firm in the faith. This, this, this is the idea that we're, we are to be committed. We're to have firm convictions. We're not to be those who are easily kind of shoved off of where we are standing, but we take a wide stance. I love how the psalmist said it. He said, I walk in a wide place. I'm not going to fall off the tightrope because I got jarred too easily. No, you push me, I got a base. I'm ready to go. And one of the things that makes your base stronger is you're locked into a group of people. 
If you know, if, if Austin, where's Austin? If Austin were to come back up here, he's stronger than me, I'll give you that, Austin. If you were to come up here and push me, you'd get me off base. But if I were to lock arms with Jack and Steven and Steve right here, and we were to stand here and lock arms, and then you tried to push us, we're not going anywhere. We're standing firm, right? And so we need, to, we need to be those who are locked into community, standing firm individually before God, but standing firm together as a community. Philippians chapter four, verse one, here's the same word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, I love Paul, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Second Thessalonians 2, 15. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Standing firm and being watchful are similar, but they're a little different. To stand firm means to, to have a doctrinal purity. This has a little bit more to do with your mind. This has a little bit more to do with knowing what the word of God teaches, knowing what God has communicated to us of how we ought to live our life and what is right and what is true and what is good and what is just, and to not be willing to take any idea that contradicts it whatsoever. You stand firm. We don't move. We stand right where God has us. How many times in the book of 1 Corinthians does Paul say to be weary of false teachers? Do not be deceived by false teachers. Doesn't he say that? And what's the idea here? Is that there, there's those who want to distract us from the purity of the gospel. They want to just say, no, don't be that rigid with it. Just, if you, if you expand the gospel just a little bit to include this and this, it's still the same general idea, but now it's a little bit easier for everyone to digest. Paul says, no, stand firm unapologetically stand on the word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that same chapter on the resurrection, you remember in the opening verses, he laid out, Paul laid out this ancient creed. In fact, it's the most historic creed the Christian church has. It goes back to within six years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's recited in the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here. Paul says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And then he goes on and to say, and then he appeared to me as the, the least of the apostles. What, what could Paul be talking about standing firm here? Well, maybe, maybe he's going back to chapters you know, five through seven, and he's looking at the topic of marriage and divorce. Do you remember that in chapter seven? And he, he's saying, look, there's a culture, Corinth, in first century Corinth of of wild divorce, divorce for any reason. That was first century Corinth. <laughs> Anything was permissible for a reason for divorce. He says, look, you know what the word of God says. You know what God says on this. Don't, don't bend, don't, don't water down the purity of what God has said on this. Have marriages that honor God. Maybe he's going back to chapters eight through 10. What was it? That was a fascinating little subseries, chapters eight through 10, on food offered to idols. Do you remember that, that those sermons? And the whole concept here, it was so disorienting for us because what, what do we have to do in 21st century with food offered to idols? It has nothing to say to us, except it wasn't about food offered to idols. It was all about how Christians interact with culture. And what do you do when your Christian faith comes up to these cultural issues that are coming around you? In first century, it was food offered to idols. But we've got all these other issues we have. And, and what do we do when we come up to these different cultural issues? Where do we stand? How do we know where we draw a line of what Christians can do and can't do? We had five sermons on that topic. Maybe Paul's got that in mind when he, when he comes to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, what does that mean for us practically? How do you stand firm? Well, I'll tell you this. You can't stand firm if you don't know what you're standing on. It's impossible. 
It's impossible to stand firm on anything if you don't know the ground that you're standing on. Otherwise, what are you going to stand on? You stand firm on quicksand is what you stand on, and that doesn't get you anything. If you want to stand firm, you've got to know what God's word says. That, that, that is as simple as it gets, and if there's one key thing you take away from 1 Corinthians, oh, I want to come back to this over and over again. You can't stand firm if you don't know what you're standing on. You've got to know God's word. He's spoken with such clarity on all of these issues, on all the conditions of our heart, on everything we have to do, on, on everything of who God is and what it means to live a life that honors him. You want to live a life that honors Christ? You want to stand firm? You've got to know the word of God. You want to know how to be a good husband, how to be a good father, how to be a good wife, how to be a good mother? You want to know how to be a good neighbor, how to be a good friend, how to be a good citizen? How do we do this? Are we just figuring it out blindly? Do we just take the best idea? and just see if it works. The follower of Jesus is the person who's been blinded by the word of God. They say, God, your, your word tells me truth. I, I see all of reality through this, and wherever I go, it gets filtered through the word of God. I was looking over old surveys. One of the things, I, I've gotten off the habit of doing this, but whenever I met with folks, I used to have them do surveys, just spiritual health check-ins. And in about 50 questions or so that would ask the question, you know, how, how are you doing with the Lord right now? That way, when I come and do a one-on-one -on -one counseling meeting with you, I got something to work off of. Like, we can, we can kind of work in this area, in this area of your life, and, and give some coaching on that. And I was going over some old surveys from back in the day, and, and how many folks just, you know, one of the questions is, do I regularly engage in God's word, one through five? And the answer, how many of them were a one through three? The majority of them were a one through three which means that the majority of followers of Jesus are starving themselves from the word of God. I love how John Piper says it. John Piper says, he says, engaging with the word of God needs to be like breathing. You can't go a day without breathing. Neither can a Christian go a day without the word of God in, in, infusing their life. Because if you're going without that, you don't know where you're standing. It's the word of God that changes us. First Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. You, don't know, you can't know where to stand if you, if you don't know what the word of God says. Number two, you can't know where to stand if you're not in intimate relationship with Jesus through prayer. Christian, if we are not fostering this union with Christ through an actual prayer life, you won't, know, you won't have the power to know where to stand. We can't, we, we can't even interpret the word of God properly if not by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. It, it'll just be another book, like reading Lord of the Rings or like reading something else. But, but this is the word of God. And if this is gonna actually change the heart from the inside out, you have to be in a relationship with Jesus where your prayer life's being fostered. I know we're in all, everyone in this room is in a different place with that. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then the intimacy that you can have with Jesus should not be something that becomes second tier priority in your life. We need to labor in this. Developing a prayer life is work. It, it doesn't, there are very few people do you meet that it's just, this was super easy for me. I, I, you know, I, I spend a half an hour in prayer every morning. It's just what I do, I, I long. No one starts there. It's work. Just like any other thing in your life is work. You gotta, you gotta make time for it. You've gotta open your scriptures and go before God to develop that prayer life. You can't know where to stand if you don't know what the word of God says and if you don't have a prayer life with Jesus. Be watchful, stand fast. You know I'm gonna like this third one. Act like men, be strong. 
act like men. A literal translation, this is actually a word that's actually not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's used, it's loosely kind of used in a couple other places outside of the Bible, but a real translation of it would read something like this, be manly. That's kind of what the word means. It means be manly. Now, there's a handful of ways to translate this. What do we do with that, be manly? One way is that Paul is kind of taking these historic uh, ways that men behave and he's saying, and he's applying this spiritually to all the church, men and women, right? And, and, you know, one of those historic things that men are known for, because it's the wiring that God's given men, is courage. That men, men have been called to a place of leadership and courage. And now he's looking at the whole church, men and women. He's saying, men and women in the church, all of you, take that courageous posture of someone who's filled by the Holy Spirit and living courageously for Jesus. Be courageous. That's one way to look at this text. Another way to look at this text is that this whole closing is actually now written to the elders of the church. So the, book, the letter was to be read to the whole congregation, but now he's writing to the, to the elders, who would have been men, and he's saying to them specifically, to the men, he's saying, now elders, man up. Be manly. Be courageous. And then it goes right with that next line, be strong. Be courageous and be strong. Now, the astute Bible reader knows that those two words go together very often throughout Scripture. In fact, the book of Joshua Early on in the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, God says to Joshua when he takes over leadership of the people of God in the Old Testament, he says this, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. There it is. Be strong, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left that you might have good success wherever you go. In the New Testament, the Christian faith is very regularly referred to as a battle. In fact, in Ephesians chapter six, it says to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand the enemy in the days of evil that you live in. It's this battle where we, we, don't, we don't just kind of go through life nonchalantly. We recognize we are, we're fighting for truth. We're fighting for what God would have us do. This language is, is all through the book of 1 Corinthians. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you. This is, we've studied this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul's writing to this group that he loves. He says, be courageous. Be, be strong. You are going to be tempted. Every single person here. You're gonna be, and, and every one of you has your own temptations you're going to struggle with. For some, it's going to be, you know, uh, something like alcohol. For others, it's going to be something like lust. For others, it's going to be something like pride and ambition. Temptations are going to, and Paul says, be strong, be courageous. You fight against an enemy who wants to take you down. Cling to the Lord. First Corinthians chapter 6, remember this one? Remember in chapter 6, Paul said, don't sue each other. That was a practical one. Christians ought not to sue another Christian. And then he says this at the end of that pas passage. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Talk about a gut check for us. Do you know the type of strength and courage it takes to be defrauded when you are actually the one who's done no wrong and someone's going to get away with it and no one else knows but you and the Lord? You know what kind of courage and strength that takes? That's not just muscle man up strength. That's, the, that's Christian living. This is a different thing. We are not the same. 
There is a line of a person who has followed Jesus. Now something has changed and God is is working in the heart of that person and is producing a value system and a way of seeing the world and and a love for others that's so unique. There's nothing like it. Be willing to be defrauded to love others. We're more concerned for the glory of Christ than we are for having our own way. I love how Philip Brooks, one of my uh, Puritan heroes, he, he says this. He says, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be the miracle. This is simple Christian living. This is not extraordinary Christian living. This is just Paul closing a letter to the entire congregation saying, this is what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Last one. We have to linger here for a few minutes. Do every, let all that you do be done in love. I love how Paul ends his, his imperatives on that because it would be very easy to look at these first four and, uh, and really get in William Wallace mode. I mean, it would be easy to run out of here. And, and frankly, to be honest with you, I think, you know, when you, especially when you get guys together in a men's ministry thing and you kind of get the pump-up thing going and you're ready to go, it's very easy to think of, you know, Christianity is some kind of macho thing of being bold, being courageous. Yes, it is those things, of course. We must be strong. We must be immovable. We must be watchful. And yet there's a deeper ethic that binds all of them together. Paul, do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul had one of the most remarkable sections of all of scripture, I think, where he talked about love in 1 Corinthians 13. That's a passage that many people have read at their weddings. And listen to what he says. I'm going to re- reread it to us. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And then he said this. Remember this one? If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The first four imperatives mean nothing if the gospel of Jesus Christ has not totally changed you from the inside out. To produce in you a Christ-like love, not a taped-on love, a Christ-like love. And Christ-like love, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is active. It's not passive. Every single, I think there were 13, maybe 15 different action words that were used Every one of them, not one of them was an adjective. Every single way love was described was a verb. It moved towards somebody in an action. It it did something. It poured out your heart to somebody. It wept with people. It moved into their brokenness with them. We want to be a Christian. This is just simple. uh, This is simple Christianity 101. Love is an action. And it's impossible to love the way God wants you to love unless you've first been loved by God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did Christ love us? Did he wait until we had our life together, until we were living right, upright, moral lives, and then he said, okay, here's, there's somebody that's worthy of my love. Yes, I'll love that person. Okay, look at that person over there. Yeah, they got it. They've got it figured out. Yes, that's my person. Good, I'm going to love on that person. That is not the love of God. That's not how the love of God works. If that's how God worked, every single one of us would be separated from God for all eternity because the scriptures say not one of us is good, no, not one. The heart is deceitful above all else. 
And if we were to scan our heart and look at the true motivations, what we would find, according to the standard of God's word, is that even the most moral people we know, deep in our heart, have fallen short of the standard that is the life of Jesus. He is the standard. And when you compare to that, every single one of us looks at the motivations of our heart and we go, we're off. We, we've, we've got this wrong. But while we're in that place, God looks at us, says Romans chapter four. He looks at us and he says, I see that person who's living in rebellion towards me and now I'm gonna love him while he's in that place. He moved towards us. While we were still sinners, while we were rebelling to God, and God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to take our place on the cross underneath the wrath of God so that all who would put their faith in Jesus would have all of their sin forgiven and experience union with Christ, a relationship with the living God. Everything about you transformed. You were going in one direction, now you're going this direction. Jesus changed everything about you. That's union with Christ. And I want to ask you this. Christian, have you experienced that union with Christ? We're wrapping up 1 Corinthians right now. This is it, last few minutes. Everything we've talked about, nine months going verse by verse through this book, and it comes down to one question. This is the question you need to ask yourself. Has this book been describing you or somebody else? That is the question you need to ask. As you've read this, and every time you've come to a new chapter, and you've looked at the way God's described what life ought to be like, how you ought to manage your finances, how you ought to manage your relationships, how you ought to have an eternal perspective, how you ought to care for the widows among you, how you ought to think about culture and your faith, how you ought to think about lawsuits and when you're wronged, how you ought to think about the church of God. Is this describing you? Is it your heart being poured out in a book? And then when you found something in 1 Corinthians, that was different than the way you experienced life or the way you think about things. Was your reaction when you left this place, Jesus, I'm out of line. God, I do not want to be out of line. Correct me. Bring me back into the fold. Help me make, make sure that I do not let that train veer off too far because that ends in death. I want you and you are my king. Has it described you? Church, there are many in the city of Chicago in our own church and in many churches around the city that take the title Christian that have not experienced union with Christ. There are many, and union with Christ is a relationship with a living God where he knows you, you know him, and you're walking through life like this. And if you're in here today and you have not experienced that union, don't leave today before you experience that union. Christ has called you to a relationship. It all comes down to that question. All of 1 Corinthians come down to this. Are you living a life of love because you've first been loved by Jesus and now everything of who Jesus is is working his way through you? There are many who take the title Christian who know not Christ. They attend church, but there is no union with Christ. They know the Bible, but there's no being mastered by the Bible. They've heard of the Holy Spirit, but they've never truly experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. They know about church community, but there's no dependence on church community. Church, if this is you in this room today, look to Jesus on the cross, who went to the cross for you to pay all of your sin, and who longs for you to have the fullness of the Spirit, to live lives that, that are living this out, a reflection of the gospel at work in you today. Don't leave before that work gets done. Today is the day of salvation, says the scriptures. Today is the day of salvation. Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love.
I want to close this whole sermon series out by borrowing word from the Apostle Paul. This is how he finishes his letter, and I want to read it to you as my pastoral blessing over you. I, Paul, I, Rafe, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, I pray over our church right now. I pray, God, that as we linger over this book of 1 Corinthians that we've taken nine months to read, Jesus, that you would give us sensitive hearts, that you'd permit us to not be those who just kind of go through the motions and aren't changed, but, God, that we would be those who are transformed. Help us right now, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.